I am somebody because God made me somebody, so I'm going to live like somebody. I am somebody because God made me somebody, so I'm going to live like somebody. Do you believe that? Do you believe you're somebody? Well, are you living like somebody? That's what this series is about. Now, I want to be clear. Those words, those are not expressions of arrogance or self-absorption. It's an affirmation of our inherent value in God's eyes. And I found that if you don't believe you're somebody in God's eyes, you'll never live your purpose. It's important for you to see yourself the way God does. Now, over the years, I've had the opportunity to get to hear some great leaders in our country speak. I like to go to leadership conferences, sort of keeps my leadership skills, you know, honed in. And uh, one of the great leaders I've gotten to hear is a person who used to be the CEO of the great computer giant HP, Carly Fiorina. Now, Carly was born in Austin, and so she's a little weird, you know, Austin people. (laughs) But uh, she rose through the ranks in her industry and became the first woman to head a top 20 Fortune 500 company in the United States. Pretty impressive. And under her leadership, HP became the largest seller of personal computers in the world. Really impressive. Well, Carly Fiorina is also a follower of Jesus. And uh, at one of the conferences where I got to hear her speak, she talked to us a little bit about how her mother instilled vision for her to live her purpose. And she said that her mom would say to her over and over again, who you are is God's gift to you. What you make of yourself is your gift to God. Isn't that awesome? Who you are is God's gift to you, and what you make of yourself is your gift to God. Look, you are somebody because God made you somebody, and you experience joy when you live like somebody. Who you are is God's gift to you, but what you make of yourself is your gift to God. And you make something of yourself when you live your purpose. And when we we talk about living your purpose at City Church, we mean recognizing who God created you to be so you can do what he created you to do. Because you do exist for a reason, and God has a purpose for your life, and you can live it. And as you live your purpose, you experience a profound kind of joy in your life. Because as we've said throughout this series, uh, there's a difference between having fun and feeling joy. There's a difference between merely surviving and truly thriving. There's a difference between making a living and making a life. And through this series, I hope to inspire you to believe that you do matter, that you can make a difference, and that you can uniquely make this world a better place by living your purpose. And so throughout this series, we've been studying through the ancient uh, first uh, century Christian letter called Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul. And it's an interesting letter because Paul, all throughout this letter, talks about how he feels joy and how he's full of joy despite experiencing some pretty unhappy circumstances. In fact, if you remember, we said that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison, literally in chains because of his faith in Jesus. 
And yet, he said he felt joy. He said he was full of joy. Well, how can you be full of joy in those terrible circumstances? Because he was living his purpose. And he was seeking to inspire the Philippian believers to live their purpose. And in this part of his letter, he addresses some life issues that can distract us and keep us from living our purpose. Is there any life issue that is distracting you and preventing you from living your purpose? Well, hopefully what we look at today will help you get beyond that. And so, uh, if you remember, the Philippians were experiencing, the uh, Philippian believers were experiencing um, some challenges, some unhappy circumstances themselves. Themselves, uh, they were facing some religious discrimination in their community, so they were facing conflict out from outside the church. But we're going to find in the ne- this next part of the letter that they were also experiencing conflict and division within the church. And so th- this is what happened. If you remember a few weeks ago, I told you how the church in Philippi started. It started when Paul met with a group of women and introduced them to Jesus, and they believed in Jesus, and then they influenced their family to believe in Jesus. They influenced other people in the city of Philippi to believe in Jesus, and those women became the first believers on the European continent, and they were very involved from the very beginning in the church spreading throughout Europe. Now, from the earliest days in the church of Philippi, there was strong female leadership that made a difference. Well, at this point, the point at which Paul is writing this letter, it appears that two of the female leaders were butting heads and they were in conflict with each other. And their conflict was distracting people from living their purpose and it was stealing everybody's joy. So Paul wrote these words. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, okay, first can I say, how would you like to be those two ladies? You get your name called out in a letter by name that made it into the Bible forever for billions and billions of people to see for doing something naughty. Woo! And I think Paul did this because it's evident that their conflict was so substantive that it was wreaking havoc within their community. And uh, it was distracting people from living their purpose. And like I said, it, it was stealing everybody's joy. And so he wanted them to address it. Now, how many of you know when you have unresolved conflict in your life, it distracts you and it, it sucks the joy right out of you? And then what makes matters worse is when we respond to the conflict in dysfunctional, unhealthy ways. You ever done that? So I don't want this to be a theoretical part of my message. I want us to think about someone particular, someone that you're in conflict with right now. So I want you to think of someone. Oh, some of you just thought of the person. And then you were thinking, oh, I'm going to switch to a different person because I don't want to resolve the conflict with that. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I know how you think. <laughs> That's the person I want you to have in your mind right now. Because what I want us to do is to address the conflict, the unresolved conflict between you and that person. It may be, a, may be your spouse. It may be a parent, a kid. It may be you know, someone in your family. It may be a coworker, maybe a friend. How have you responded to that conflict? Have you done anything dysfunctional in the conflict? 
By that I mean, like, have you used the silent treatment to passive-aggressively punish that other person? Some, I can see some of you use that one. That's a good one, isn't it? Or some of you, maybe you've gossiped about that person to get other people on your side in the conflict so that you'll feel more like you're right and the other person's wrong. Or maybe you have powered up with the strength of your personality to shut the other person down in the conflict. Or maybe you've spoken hurtful words or you've taken hurtful actions against the person to harm them in the conflict. Or maybe you've even manipulated the situation or the person in the conflict, all in an attempt to win, win, win. Because isn't that the real issue in the conflict? We want to win. And I think what Paul's saying here is nobody wins when you're focused on winning yourself in a conflict. And when you're in an unresolved conflict, it will distract you from living your purpose and it sucks the joy out of your life. And so Paul wanted these women to resolve their conflict and he urged them, I I like what he said here, to be of the same mind together in the Lord. So what does that mean? I looked up the the word in the Greek language, and it means to think the same thing together. So it's like you're both thinking the same thing. When you can both start thinking the same thing, you begin to resolve your conflict. And so resolving conflict, according to Paul, begins right here. See, you think resolving conflict begins right here, but it doesn't. It has to begin up here. You have to be of the same mind and to think the same way about each other and about the conflict. Resolving conflict begins in your mind. And Paul is calling for more uh, more than just a mere apology. He's calling for more than just tolerance where you know how you act like everything's okay when it's really not okay. That's where you're trying to fake yourself out and it's not real. And it will still distract you. It will still suck the joy out of your life. Instead, he's calling these two ladies to do what we at City Church call making amends. And you make amends by taking two things that are broken or torn and you reunite them and reconnect them. And so you make amends by by thinking in right ways about the other person that you're in conflict with. Because how many of you know when you have a negative narrative going on in your mind about that person? Come on. Do Do you ever think about the person, what that person said? what that person did, and then you recount it over and over in your mind, and then it becomes bigger, and and then it makes you even more stressed out? Okay, it begins right here. You have to think in right ways to make amends. And so resolving conflict uh, and making amends, it means uh, admitting your own part in the conflict. It means trying to understand how the other person feels and what they think. Even if you don't agree with them, it means trying to understand the other person. And then above all, making amends means making peace with the other person. And I understand that in all conflicts, you can't always make peace because that that also depends on the other person. But as much as it depends on you, make peace. Because peace doesn't just happen. You have to make peace. So I'm going to say that again. Don't be distracted. It's okay. Peace doesn't just happen. You have to make peace. And you make peace by making amends. And Paul says that that all begins up here with what you think. So how do you get your thinking right when you're in a conflict with someone? Well, Paul continues. Uh, This is uh, verses four and five. He writes, so rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all for the Lord is near. So what does that have to do with conflict? I think this is what Paul is saying. 
When you rejoice in the Lord, when you choose to rejoice in the Lord, you want what He wants in this relationship and in this conflict. In other words, it's more important that the Lord wins in this conflict than that you win, right? And, and here's what Paul is saying, how the Lord wins in a conflict is when your gentleness becomes evident to all, especially the person you're in conflict with. So what does it mean to be gentle? As I said a moment ago, the, the Christian scriptures were written in the Greek language, and I looked that word up, and it literally means not insisting on your rights. That's what it means to be gentle. So being gentle means not pressing your rights even when you're right. Being gentle means not pressing your rights even when the other person is wrong. And that goes against everything we, <laughs> the way we think naturally as humans, right? But isn't that beautiful? Somebody has to give. Somebody has to be gentle. And Paul is saying you can resolve your conflict by being gentle. And you, you can choose the way you think about that person and how you feel about that person because what you think determines how you feel and what you do. It starts right up here. You get your heart and your mind right about that person and it will eventually come out. Otherwise, you will keep unresolved conflict in your relationships and in your life and it will distract you from living your purpose and it will steal your joy. And I'm going to show you how. So as I prepare for this message, I read an article in the Journal of Social Psychiatry. And researchers there found that people who hold grudges, meaning people who don't resolve their conflicts, they have, uh, they have higher rates, no, notice this, they have higher rates of heart disease, cardiac arrest, elevated blood pressure, stomach ulcers, back pain, headaches, and chronic pain. Is that what you want in your life? <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty obvious. No. Okay. Then you have to resolve conflict. You cannot be the kind of person who holds on to grudges. When you hold on to grudges, it distracts you from living your purpose and it, and it sucks the joy out of you. I am somebody because God made me somebody. So I'm going to live like somebody. How about you? If you're going to live like somebody, you do have to deal with the issues, the life issues that will distract you from living your purpose. So the first issue that Paul was concerned about was unresolved conflict. The second one, a second issue, uh, he surfaces in verse 6, where Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the second issue that Paul surfaces here that will distract us from living our purpose is anxiety. Because how many of you know when you feel anxious, it does something not great to you? Uh, to your mind, to your, you know, obviously to your emotions and to how you live your life. And so uh, I, I, I wanted to understand what does it actually mean to be anxious? And so I looked up the clinical definition of it. And, and it says, it's an intense, excessive, persistent worry about common life situations. You ever struggle with that? And here's how you know. Here, here are the symptoms of anxiety. Rapid heart rate, rapid breathing, sweating, nausea, insomnia, or feeling tired when you don't have a reason to feel tired. And we know that Americans struggle with anxiety. 
In fact, researchers have found that uh, anxiety-related problems are the number one mental health issue for women in the United States, and it's the number two issue for men just after substance abuse. And that same report found that Americans spend, get this, over $300 billion a year on medical bills and lost productivity due to anxiety-related problems. It's amazing. And this is not just an issue among adults. A a different report uh, did a survey of students, of teenagers, and this is what they found. They found that the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric clinic patient did in 1950s. That's a lot of anxiety. And you know, if if you're a, a teenager out there, or if you have a teenager, these feelings of anxiety, they're real. And you don't have to live with them persistently. You can do something about it. So Paul said, he, he gives us a, a sense of how to deal with anxiety. He said, don't be anxious about anything. Now, don't you hate when people do that? When, when you say, you know, I'm feeling anxious, and they say, well, don't, don't be anxious. Don't feel anxious. Is Paul giving some kind of simplistic answer to a complex life issue? I don't believe so. I think it's more profound than that. And uh, so as I was uh, getting ready for this message, uh, a local pastor and author who lives here in San Antonio, Max Lucado, a great man, great leader, wrote a book uh, built on this passage called uh, Be Anxious for Nothing. And in it, he unpacks these words. And this is what he wrote. I really liked what he had to say. He said, the presence of anxiety is unavoidable, but the prison of anxiety is optional. It's the life of perpetual anxiety that Paul wants to address. Don't let anything in life leave you perpetually in angst. So Paul is not shaking his finger at us saying, well, you ought to just not be anxious if you're anxious. That's ridiculous. Instead, if you go back to his words and and look at what he says, he gives us a a pathway, a pattern for how to get rid of our anxiety. And there's our part in it, and then there's God's part. Our part is to lift up everything that is causing us anxiety to God in prayer. And prayer is about trusting God with that issue or that person in life that is causing you anxiety. Recognizing, for most of us, when we feel anxious about something, We partly feel anxious about it because we can't do anything about it. We have no control over it, right? And that that adds even more anxiety. Prayer is where we get to the place where we trust God with the issue. We trust God to be in control, and we let it go to Him. So that's our part. God's part is to exchange our anxieties for His peace. And did you notice Paul didn't say, He'll give you your peace. He says, He'll give you God's peace. And God's peace is beyond human understanding. It transcends human understanding, which means it's otherworldly, which means God's peace you can feel no matter what your circumstances might be. You can feel peace no matter what. Now, whatever is causing you anxiety or concern, in a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to practice what Paul is talking about to exchange your anxieties for God's peace. But I I also want to pause for a moment and say something about those of you who may be experiencing extreme anxiety or debilitating depression. 
You see, there, there is some anxiety that is so intense and so great, you can't get, uh, overcome it on your own. And if that's what you're experiencing, I, I don't want you to like oversimplify what I'm, what I'm saying to you. I want to acknowledge that there are some uh, levels of anxiety and depression that are so significant you need help to overcome them. And it's not a sign uh, of weakness. It's not a sign that you are spiritually immature. It's just a sign that you're a human being. And there are sometimes some seasons in our lives where we can get in such a deep pit of anxiety and worry that we can't get out of that pit without some help. And so what I'm saying to you is ask for help. Tell somebody and let some people help you get out of your anxiety. And this is so important. Oh, I want this for you so much because you are somebody. And anxiety will keep you from living like that somebody. I am somebody because God made me somebody. So I'm going to live like somebody. And I invite you to do the same. Now, so the first two issues that will keep us from living like somebody, there's unresolved conflict, there's anxiety, and now we're going to look at a third and final issue that Paul was concerned about with these believers. This is uh, Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So here Paul is surfacing what happens when we have negative, ugly, untruthful, distorted ways of thinking. He said you have to get that out of your life because if you're thinking in those ways, it will prevent you from living your purpose. So I like to call what Paul's talking about here stinking thinking. If you have any stinking thinking in here, it's going to impact the way you feel and what you do. And it will keep you from living your purpose and experiencing the joy that comes with it. So how does stinking thinking get into us? Well, sometimes stinking thinking comes into us when we experience challenges in life, whether we, we experience failures or negative circumstances, hardships in life. And, and then it's especially true for those who have experienced the severe pain of abuse or trauma in life. And, and it can just influence our way of thinking and bring stinking thinking into our lives. Now, another way that stinking thinking comes into our lives is through words that people have spoken to us and into us, especially those words spoken by authority figures like parents, pastors, priests, teachers, uh, coaches, you know, all of that. If, sometimes it, when people speak negative words, you know, it's, you know, I've noticed people can speak 20 positive words to me, but if, if someone speaks one negative word, that's the one that sticks. It's like it's Velcro in my brain. And so sometimes when people have spoken harmful, hurtful words to you and it's stuck in your brain, it, it leads to some stinking thinking. And then uh, another avenue of stinking thinking is just distorted beliefs about God, about the world, about other people, and sometimes even distorted beliefs about yourself. So what does Paul say to do? I, I like, if you go back and look what it, at what Paul wrote, he's telling us, you can choose what you think about. He's acknowledging to them, you're, you're thinking about untruthful thoughts, not lovely thoughts, hurtful thoughts. I'm calling you to think about what is noble, what is true. What is lovely? What is admirable? You can choose to think on those things. 
And that's what he's inviting us to do, to choose to think about the good and the positive and the life-affirming truths in our lives. Because what you think matters. What you think determines how you feel and what you do. And so, one of the reasons we gather each week as a community and sing songs of truth is to change the stinking thinking that can change your life. One of the reasons we get together each week to study the scriptures is to change the stinking thinking that can change your life. One of the reasons that we encourage you to find a, a reading plan and to read through the scriptures and meditate on them is to change the stinking thinking that'll change your life. And one of the reasons we encourage people to get into circles with some other believers uh, and to find freedom together is to change the stinking thinking that will change your lives. And I assure you, if you will change the stinking thinking, the stink will begin to go out of your life because what you think matters. I am somebody because God made me somebody and I am gonna live like somebody. Will you say that with me? I am somebody because God made me somebody, so I'm going to live like somebody. Okay, I want you to say that again. A video Cafe, I don't know how you did, but I want everybody here to say it like you really believe it. And I know that maybe right now you don't believe it yet. That's okay. Begin to speak this affirmation. Are you ready? I am somebody because God made me somebody, so I'm going to live like somebody. Okay, now you got it. Now... But to live like somebody, we are going to have to face these life issues. And so in just the last few minutes, I want to just share with you a part of my journey and be just honest with you. You know, sometimes you get to hear me talk about some, you know, victories in my life and, and, and real positive things. But there are times you need to hear some of the painful parts of my story. And one of the life issues that Paul talked about today that I have struggled with in my life is anxiety and anxious thoughts. And so it, that was particularly true in my 20s. As I now look back, when I was in my 20s, here's how I, how, how I interpreted how I felt. I felt intense. I felt driven. And I've been honest with you guys, I felt angry. And I just thought that's the way I'm wired. It's just, you know, my personality type, whatever. But now looking back, I realized I was filled with anxiety. And it was so bad that it impacted my body. When I was in my 20s, I couldn't eat any spicy food. I couldn't eat onions, I couldn't eat peppers, no jalapenos, no cholula. <laughs> and it was so bad that I had, I had to carry around Tums and this stuff called Malox. I don't even think they make it anymore because my stomach was just, I was in pain all the time. I was nauseous. My stomach, stomach was just a mess. And I thought it was just, oh, that's just my body. I thought it was a physical problem. But I realized it was more than that. And as I, as I began to look back and find freedom in my life, I realized I was filled with anxiety that flowed from fears that I believed. I, I wrestled with a lot of fears in my life, especially the fear of failure. And it was very overwhelming. Well, there was a certain season in my life where I was just filled with anxiety. I had finished my second master's degree, preparing to become a pastor. I was all ready to go, all excited. And I started looking for a job. You know, I just want to find a job. And as the weeks turned into months and then the months turned into over a year, I still couldn't find a job. And during that season, I was just filled with anxiety. 
And I, I got to a point where I just felt overwhelmed. I was so filled with anxiety. And I remember one afternoon, I just, I knelt at, beside a bed in our little duplex and I just poured my heart out to God. I, I just said, God, I'm done. I don't know what to do. I thought I did everything I was supposed to do to, to prepare myself to serve you, to live my purpose. And here I am, I can't even get a stinking job. And I just cried out to God. I just laid all my anxieties before him. And that afternoon, I began to have a little sense of peace. And eventually, I did have a church in Virginia call me to be their pastor and it was a, a wonderful season in my life. But there's something else that happened, and this is what I wanted to tell you. I noticed that, that, that when that happened, and from that point forward, my stomach changed. I noticed my stomach didn't bother me anymore. I didn't have to eat Tums and Maalox all the time. And so I started, you know, bringing back some of the, the food, you know. I started eating the spicy stuff and, like, eat, even jalapenos and serranos. And, and, uh, so now when I go to Whataburger, I get number four. That's the one, yeah, baby, that's the one with jalapenos and cheese. And it makes my nose run, and just, it's awesome. <laughs> Here's why I'm, I'm saying all that to you. When my mind and my heart came to a place of peace, my body came to peace, too. Now, I, I, I want to be honest with you. It's not like you overcome anxiety once, and then boom, you, you never struggle with it. There's been seasons in my life, and honestly, even recently, I've struggled with some anxious thoughts. I'm just being honest. But now, to the best of my ability, I do try to practice what Paul is talking about here and, and to just give my anxieties back to God because almost all of them, 99% of them, I can't control anyway, so why would I even worry about it? And if I, it, it, I promise you, if you can learn to give your anxieties and worries back to God, he will give you his peace even if the situation doesn't change. And so I want to give you the chance to do that today. And so I, I'm, I want to invite you just to close your eyes for a moment. We're going to pray. Everybody in the video cafe, if you would do the same. And as I prayed about how to lead you in this prayer, this is what I felt like the Lord showed me. If you would take and just sort of hold your, your hands out in front of you a little bit and then clench your fists. And this picture is what you're holding on to that is causing you anxiety. Okay, do you know what that is? It may be a life situation. It may be a person. It may be your finances. Maybe like me, maybe it's your employment. Whatever that is causing you anxiety. And so, Lord, we come before you, and as an act of faith, uh, we, we want to practice what Paul said to do, which was to pray to you, to lift this up to you, and to give it to you. And so now what I want you to do is just name whatever it is, just whisper it, and let your hands go. Just release it. Release it to God. And Lord God, I ask you to do what you promised. You said if we would release what is causing us anxiety, you would give us your peace. I ask you to give us your peace today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.